It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the surrender and evacuation of Ukrainian soldiers in Mariupol's Azov-style steel plant, analyse the impact of the war on economies in the West, and hear from a Ukrainian MP heading to Brussels. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 17th of May, day 83. And today, I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and business reporter, Ben Gartside. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. The big news overnight has been in Mariupol, is the surrender of the remaining Ukrainian fighters there in the Azovstal steel plant. So we hear that after 82 days, uh, 265 soldiers uh, have surrendered. That includes 51 seriously wounded. Uh, they've been moved about 20 k's uh, further east along the coast uh, to Novrozovsk um, Hospital. The, uh, the the remaining soldiers have been taken about 50 k's north into uh, uh, further into or near Donetsk actually uh, into a town called Olonivka. Please apologise my pronunciation. So this is uh, this brings to a, a close this this chapter. Um, very interesting what it what it said about Ukrainian resistance and Russian efforts to to take what, as we've said for a number of days, number of weeks actually, has had no military significance. It's, it's, been, it's been symbolic. Um, and you'll remember that about, I think it was three weeks ago, Russia said that, um, that the battle for Mariupol was over. Um, and then they, they continued fighting for the, for the steel plant. So it showed just how, how symbolic it was to them at the time. It's going to be very interesting to see now how Russia play this. Because if, if they do say, right, the battle for Mariupol is over, the, the public will be rightfully questioning well, hang on, what, what happened a few weeks ago then so so it's almost in in russia's interest not to uh, uh not to to play it too uh, too strong a hand here um interesting also from the ukrainian point of view i mean we uh, it's amazing that they've they've lasted this long but the, the the conditions were were horrendous we can only imagine um what they are like for the 
for the uh, fighters and and the civilians that are still there, still in the in the plant. And of course, there's there's hundreds of thousands of civilians still in in Mariupol city. Um, but interesting the timing. So in the last few days, Ukraine's had had a, a significant operational success in the north of the country, around or sorry, northeast around around Kharkiv, pushing pushing the Russian forces back as far as the border in some in some areas there. So this might have been a good a good time for. Um, for Ukraine to try and negotiate about these, the soldiers left in the plant, they could say to Russia, um, "Okay, you can have your have your victory. You can take the whole whole of Mariupol, but you need to look after these people." Um, Russia will know that that any news that they might trumpet from the south could go some way to to spiking the guns of the bad news that they've experienced in the north. So I just I'm just interested in the timing that just a couple of days after this big push in around Kharkiv that this this um uh this, this surrender finally happens. President Zelensky has said that the the resistance there changed the course of the war. I think that that's fair. We've we've discussed here before about how um the last the last great effort those those fighters were able to to conduct was to soak up Russian Forces and and at um, at any one time they had up to we think Russia had up to nine battalion tactical groups each one being about six or seven hundred soldiers strong committed to Mariupol we think in the last couple of weeks that's gone down to two um, so freed up some fighting power but of course they'll be exhausted it'll take some time before those other battalion tactical groups are in any shape to go north and to assist in the fight in the uh, in the Donbass. And just finally on this, so Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, said that the the fighters that have been uh, that, have, that have surrendered um, uh, will be treated, quote, in accordance with international standards, unquote, he said. Uh, and he also said that, that President Putin had guaranteed this. Now, you know, I don't I, I wouldn't trust a, a Putin guarantee uh, very far at all. But the, the fact that, that Dmitry Peskov says this and there have been photos of the fighters coming out, I mean, it would be uh, very difficult now um, for Russia to main t- to say that they they, they had a upheld international standards if if those fighters that we that came out and, and that have been seen to be in good order if they now if they now are at all mistreated um, the fact that they've been held in in separatist held areas so they're not in Russia they've not gone to a third country um, there is talk of doing a a prisoner transfer for, for Russian uh, uh, prisoners of war. A bit of pushback in the Russian Duma, the state parliament, about that. But uh, yeah, that's entirely possible. But it is notable, I think, that, they, that those the, the wounded and the um, and the other fighters have gone to separatist held areas in the Donbass rather than Russia proper. Um, whether this was all was brokered between Ukraine and Russia or with the help of the UN or the International Committee of the Red Cross, we we don't know. But it is a a significant. Um, event in the course of this war and uh, and what happens next how russia plays it and what happens to those uh, those fighters and of course let's, n- let's never forget the civilians involved as well um will be will will also speak volumes about uh, about where we are in this war i'll pause there so a victory but a pyrrhic victory for the russian forces dom how do you think this changes the strategic um uh situation in the south of ukraine if, if Mariupol has finally fallen well i, I don't think it changes it Massively, so from the Russian side, the they basically controlled the, that part of uh, the Sea of Azov, which is the the small portion of the northeast part of the Black Sea. Um, the the port facilities have been badly degraded, so it's going to be some time before they're able to to use them. And quite what utility they would get out of them is is questionable anyway. So not a, not a massive strategic uh, victory for Russia, bar being able to say 
or you know, bar being able to colour a, a bit more red in on on the map. But they've already priced that in. Like I say, a few weeks ago, they they had declared victory in in Mariupol. So so what how, what they're going to do now to to squeeze another victory out of this, we, we're not not sure. On the Ukrainian side, uh, again, it, it, it's um, it's a loss loss of of uh, fighters and civilians, and many people, both civilians and and soldiers, would have died in recent weeks because they've been trapped in there with, with no access to decent living conditions, food, water, sanitation, medical care. Um, so there'll be a lot of people um, who are who, who are not alive today that, that might have been had this surrender happened earlier. However, um, in the in the grand strategic uh, view of it, this has been a, a an amazing success for Ukraine, and they will hold it as such i mean this this resistance it speaks volumes about the the ukrainian character this will go alongside the um the moskvar you know off you go you know go go sink yourself uh, comment of, of uh, earlier in the war so these these events will have um significant impact for ukrainian society um it is not a massive tactical loss in, in, a, in, a, in as much as it won't really affect the passage of the war in that uh, geographic area. So you know, I don't want to put it down as blandly as, as, as who, who's the winner, who's the loser here. But I think Ukraine have already taken more from this resistance and will continue to do so long after Russia gain any geographic advantage or try and spin it at home as as the the victory we told you about three weeks ago. Well, actually, it's, it's really finally happened. So um, yeah, I think I think Ukraine probably have the have the symbolic victory more than Russia. Just a couple more quick ones for you, Dom. I think before we bring Ben in, um, there was a um, ex- lots of explosions um, last night in Lviv, and also an interesting thing I thought this morning that the Telegraph has picked up uh, how a Russian state TV commentator has admitted on on TV that Russia is isolated and Ukraine's military is formidable. Um, both interesting stories. Would you like to just take us through both of them? Yeah, so on the former, the the ability of Russia to fire munitions across the whole of Ukraine has not diminished. Um, the ability to fire precision munitions has massively diminished, which is not a, not necessarily a good thing. It's good that they, they don't have any of the stocks left of these things, but actually they're then left with unguided munitions, either artillery or air-launched missiles, and their, and their air force is rarely venturing much out of the... Donbass, it's rarely venturing forward of its own troops for fear of, of Ukrainian air defence systems. We think a lot of these um, explosions in Lviv came from from the Black Sea, possibly submarine uh, launched cruise missiles from the Black Sea. Um, but what this shows is, I mean, these these are punitive strikes. I mean, they're they're, they're not knitted together with any great sort of operational impetus. They are just. They are there, I, I suppose. Russia would say they're attempting to to destroy the the flow of Western arms into Ukraine. But I mean that, as we've discussed before, you need a lot more than just a, a munition to do that. You've got to have effective targeting, real time targeting, or as, as near real time as, as you as you can get. If this stuff's being moved by rail or or road, um, I think Ukraine have learnt not to store these things all in one one place. They're being dispersed and and pushed forward to troops very quickly after coming into the country. So. There's not Russia is not achieving a huge amount by by this uh, this type of activity. Um, however, we've seen that they're not they don't really care about the indiscriminate use of aerial bombardment. Today's uh, defence intelligence 
assessment from MOD said that as as more is discovered from the north of the country uh, around the area of Chernihiv, they say that uh, there's about three and a half thousand homes that have been destroyed in the, in the area, and just speaks to this indiscriminate use of of artillery. They really don't care if it's, a, if it's a either a, a civilian target or a, a possibly a military target um, that might be be near civilian targets, or that, that's un, that's that's unlikely. Um, so yeah, it, it speaks to it speaks to this indiscriminate use of air uh, or, or air, air delivered munitions because they can't achieve much on the ground. They're still still stalled in in the Donbass. As for the comments from from Moscow, uh, we've seen a couple of these. A couple of uh, this talk show that's usually good fire breathing stuff, all, all fairly easily ignored. Um, but they do occasionally um, have a have a sort of wake up call and talk about reality and it has been assessed in the past that this is this is the the kremlin's way of just floating an idea out to see how it's how it's received by the public so let's say let's say the kremlin wants to try and work out how it can prepare russian society for the news that um that that kharkiv the, the front in kharkiv has been pushed pushed right back um, and in fact, there's even there's unconfirmed reports this morning that Ukrainians uh, up in the in the northeast of Kharkiv have crossed the uh, Siversky Donetsk River, and that would be hugely significant. If they're across that river, then they can really start getting stuck into those supply lines coming down from Belgorod in in Russia. So, if if this is some experiment to see what the appetite is for a a more sensible discussion in in Russian society, um, that that might be one explanation for it. There might also be, yeah. There, again, there's been an assessment that perhaps after failing to take the entire country and failing in this in this lightning strike to take Kiev in the opening hours uh, of the war, assessed to be the first 72 hours was, was the objective to take Kiev and to and to win the war. Um, that Putin's downgraded his objectives to to the Donbass and holding that land corridor through to, to Crimea. I mean, this might be a way of testing the water with Russian society to see what what the appetite is for for keeping going, or or, or maybe entering negotiations here. I, it's it's almost impossible to to tell with with Russian state media. However, they they don't say anything that's not Kremlin approved. So I'd be I'd be very surprised if this had just slipped out by accident, and there wasn't some some wider scheme um, at play. And if so, my assessment would be that this is the Kremlin just testing the water to see see where to take the temperature of the uh, of, of the public after quite a few uh, uh, setbacks in the recent weeks. Thanks, Dom. Um, ben Gartside, thank you very much for joining us again. Um, can we talk about some of the economic uh, issues and um, news that that's emerged in the last few days? Um, we saw. I think it's helpful now to zoom out of Ukraine a little bit and just see talk about how the war is impacting uh, other societies. Um, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, he warned yesterday of apocalyptic, that's a quote, quote marks, apocalyptic global food price rises and said that he is helpless in the face of surging inflation as the economy is battered by the war in Ukraine. Can you talk us through his remarks and just uh, and tell us what, why is he saying what he's saying and actually what can central banks do to, to, to mitigate uh, the effects of the war? Sure. So um, Andrew Bailey's comments yesterday come as kind of part of a wider um, but apart from him on on the on the war on inflation, there is obviously a huge amount of inflationary pressure causing a cost of living crisis across the UK, but but also globally. Um, 
and Andrew Bailey's comments come as part of kind of a warning to people about where this is going to go. I think with the energy bill cap rises that happened in the past couple of months, people have thought that perhaps we're getting to the end of this inflationary pressure as opposed to the start when sadly this is kind of the the beginning as opposed to the end with further energy price rises expected later this year. Um, so, so Bailey kind of said in these comments that he warned about global food price rises, as you said, and he's played down the role that the Bank of England can have in in stopping this and, and played up the role that, for example, the war in Ukraine has had on these price rises. And it's worth saying that this is this is during a position where the Bank of England's independence is seemingly at play again. It was famously made independent um, by New Labour in the beginning of the 2000s and has benefited from that in recent years. However, there's been a lot more critique of Andrew Bailey with uh, cabinet ministers and um, kind of government sources increasingly becoming critical of of his role. Um, So kind of back to the question in terms of of what what happens next and kind of what's happening here. it looks like we're going to hit around 10% cost price inflation later this year, which is, is is very, very high. And while this is high, the Bank of England has known that it would be high for some time. And this predates the war in Ukraine. Um, in early February, again, pre-war, it was anticipated that inflation would hit around 7% in the second quarter of the year, um, which is far above the 2% target which the government gives the Bank of England. It doesn't want inflation to be any higher than than 2%. So it's it's been known that that this is kind of going to have an impacting effect. The Bank of England has a number of things it can do. Chiefly, it's in charge of interest rates. And we've seen interest rate rises in recent months. Um, Bailey's again going to come under pressure to rise interest rates further. However, this is not a something that comes without cost. The British public utilises loans and needs low interest rates in many regards, whether that's in our housing stock. Many people have got um, mortgages that are contingent on low interest rates for them to be able to make payments. Some people have buy now, pay later loans or kind of sofas, whatever, on finance. Um, And people with those type of deals are going to see increasing pressure on their finances by not only interest rates, but kind of high cost through cost price inflation. Thanks, Ben. There was also some interesting news. Uh, McDonald's is pulling out of Russia after more than 30 years of selling selling their goods there. They're, they're taking a $1.4 billion hit from the decision. Um, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about this because um, well, it, has, it has knock-on effects and it's, it's a useful case study, in, in a sense, of, of how businesses are dealing with the war. Yeah, the McDonald's case is fascinating um, because I think while to you and me, it's kind of the home of very cheap fast food. It's much more of a cultural item within within Russia. I mean, this morning, um, upon the kind of exit of the company, the, the chief executive, um, Chris Kempsinski, described the company as embodying the notion of glasnost, the kind of post-Soviet liberalizations. It was a very iconic moment when... Um, citizens of the former Soviet Union were able to buy Big Macs and able to buy these things that were previously held up as kind of the the embodiment of US society and, and free markets and capitalism. So the decision to pull out is very notable. The fast food giant has around um, 850 restaurants in the country and 62,000 employees. So this isn't like with some companies where they've got a very, very small footprint in in Russia. McDonald's has a very sizable presence. Um and the company um, intends to quote de-arch outlets, so that's removing the McDonald's name, logo, branding, and menu. 
um, while they are sold to a local um, local buyer. However, it will take um, it will retain the trademark in Russia. Um, and McDonald's say that it's no longer terminable or consistent with McDonald's values to stay in the country. Um, this is quite a significant hit on McDonald's balance sheet. This will cost them. Um, Russia and Ukraine kind of contribute. Both Ukraine stores are still closed for obvious reasons. Um, it contributes around 10% of their annual revenue, which is around £1.6 billion. Um, and, and the company expect, expects to kind of incur costs of around $1.4 billion from closing. And it, it comes to a point regarding how Western companies are leaving Russia if they are doing so. You've got some like McDonald's um, and and kind of the oil companies is another example who, while it took a bit of pressure for them to get to that point, they've very fundamentally left the country or kind of fundamentally trying to decouple from Russia. And you have other companies, including um, kind of um, uh, Burger King and Marks and Spencer, who say they're unable to close stores because it's a because of a franchise deal where basically they've sold the rights to the name and the branding to a Russian operator and they receive money from this Russian operator, but they are not involved in the day-to-day business in the same way McDonald's or, or kind of Netflix or, or, or other companies are. And it fundamentally comes down to kind of the nuances within corporate structure and also the willingness of businesses to be able to kind of extricate themselves from the Russian economy. And it's, it's quite a big statement that McDonald's has given kind of how iconic the brand is in Russia and has become and how symbolic it's become too. Um, so it's kind of quite interesting and will heap more pressure onto those com- companies that perhaps haven't pulled out or have promised to pull out but haven't actually got around to doing so yet to actually kind of really energise their work here because McDonald's pulling out is is really, really quite symbolic. Thanks, Ben. I know, Dom, you had a question. Yeah, please, Ben. Um, I, I'm interested in this this idea about the, the sort of corporate social responsibility and the values argument for, for pulling out. And I just wondered if you had a view on whether or not the, the companies that that would take this financial hit will, will in any way get financial assistance from their from their governments, because it's clearly in line with, with government strategy, um, or if they're doing it because they think it will affect them simply from the values argument. And I'm thinking that in recent, in recent years, we've seen this push for buyers to be more uh, to, 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 to sort of own their purchases more, and for companies to 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 reflect that in their ethical choices and sourcing and and supply chains and and so on and so forth, but it hasn't ever really broken through to the extent that this has. And I wonder if if so, the, the, will the green lobby, for example, be looking on almost with envy that it that it takes a, a massive war to to make some of these companies sit up and start making choices in line with values, or or is it? Is it is it just is it is this just just too big and they, and they had to do it? It's it's quite an interesting question, um, and it, it's a good one because I think that quite uh, very very. Um, it's what we're seeing is that governments, rather than kind of offering financial assistance for people to pull out, um, it's been much more of a stick approach than a carrot. To kind of use a tortured metaphor, um, we've seen Shell and BP got called in by Quasi Kwarteng and um, read the Riot Act regarding their kind of continued existence in Russia, um, and there is therefore a, a significant pressure on companies. It's also worth saying from a much more cynical point of view at the moment that while the Russian economy has been impacted by sanctions, if they continue, it will be much more significantly impacted, especially if the ruble devalues further. 
in many cases, this is the best opportunity businesses are going to have to sell these Russian subsidiaries, companies, joint ventures, um, because if they wait a year, then who knows what the state of the Russian economy is going to be if the war continues and, and perseveres. Um, so, so there is kind of a dual um, a dual role in kind of why these companies are pulling out. In terms of kind of the green lobby and, and other and other areas, I think it is kind of quite a strong example of what concerted, continued pressure can achieve with. Um, with the green lobby and kind of with environmental campaigners, if they look at kind of use of fossil fuels or stuff like that, there is many ways that corporations can kind of guise their emissions or their roles in these projects or kind of offset them via the purchasing of carbon credits or kind of other other mitigants um, to kind of downplay the impact that their investments are having. With kind of the conflict in Russia, it's very, very black and white. You either have a Russian operation or you don't, and you either you are in control of it or it's franchised. Um, so it's, it's left a lot of room that kind of CEOs, companies are unable to hide behind. And a lot of governments have been very, very blunt, especially kind of Zelensky being very eager to call out companies who are still working with Russia. There is nowhere to hide and they kind of know it's a race, either they're going to do it first and they can get a round of applause or it's going to come with egg on their face following kind of sustained pressure from either their own national governments, whether it be Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, Kwasi Kwarteng, or kind of even more painfully kind of the government of Ukraine. Um, so I think that's really kind of exercised a lot of, a lot of corporations. Thanks, Ben. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, do you have any, anything else you want to, you think our listeners should know? Or shall I swing back to Dom? Um, I think just just quickly in terms of the discussion we were having with Andrew Bailey, um, I think kind of what what's interesting is while Ukraine has been blamed and kind of it has had an impact on inflation, there's been a notion that it's been the, the bulk of the impact. And I think it's worth pointing to a number of other impacts that, that the war has had and kind of and, and things that aren't the war has had on cost price inflation, because we've the world has reopened following a pandemic. There is suddenly demand is much higher for fuels, which has pushed them up. Um, China is still in a lockdown situation, which means that cheaper goods that people would usually use have been less less easy to get hold of and supply chains have been disrupted. Um, so when kind of Andrew Bailey and others point to Ukraine solely as the impact, there is a question there and kind of it should be taken with a pinch of salt. It's definitely had an inflationary impact, but... Um, I think there's been an attempt to carry goodwill for the inflationary environment by pointing to um, the Ukraine war and the impacts that that will have when that isn't the total impact. There's very clearly been a policy failure in kind of numerous governments in, in curbing inflation. And while it is a global issue, kind of it's, it's worth bearing that in mind when you see future coverage. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ben. That was hugely in-depth, I think, just what we needed. Um, to move slightly away from economics um dom nichols there's a fascinating article um in today's telegraph or it's certainly online about how uh, there's some suggestion that vladimir putin is taking personal control over russian units in the battle in donbass can you tell us more about this yeah so thanks um fascinating article ben note fascinating article um anyway <laughs> so this came out of an event yesterday i was i was at um i was in parliament yesterday for a, a speech by uh, admiral tony radican the chief of the defense staff and um so he was speaking he, he says that the, the he was saying that the russian invasion of ukraine is part of a much larger struggle um and he was saying that we we very often get wrapped up 
in, in Western sort of dialogue with defence and security boffins about the rules-based international order. And he said, but actually, you don't really... You don't really know when these things are challenged and, until they're until it's right in front of your face. And he says this: the fighting in Ukraine is really going to show whether these rules matter or not. Um, and he was saying that he was saying that the, the, the amazing resistance by Ukraine um, shows that they are on the front line of the, the defence of values, as he as he sees it. He went further. He said that. He said that Ukraine's survival is guaranteed. I thought that was quite an interesting comment from from CDS. But it was a very, very bullish response saying that um, in, in no way suggesting that the British support for Ukraine will, will, will lessen. Um, and, uh, and he was very clear. He said that the prime minister had given him very clear direction saying Putin must fail. Uh, so it was, it was a, an interesting, an interesting talk from from CDS. At that uh, at that event, I was speaking to uh, a military source and. Uh, the military source suggested or said that uh, Putin and uh, General Gerasimov, the head of the of Russia's armed forces, have both been seen to be uh, um, meddling, basically, uh, in the Russian tactical operations. Uh, I mean, they, they shouldn't be there at all, but he was saying they were they were meddling down at a level you would expect a colonel or brigadier to be to be operating. So if we think about you know, colonel, colonel brigadier, colonel in the Russian army, probably in charge of a battalion tactical group, about 700 people, a brigadier in charge, in charge of a brigade of maybe three or four battalion tactical groups. So let's say a couple of thousand, two and a half thousand. I mean, these are really tactical um, groupings. And for the, I mean, for the head of the armed forces, for, for Gerasimov to be, to be Involving himself to that degree is just extraordinary. We we wrote a couple of weeks ago when there was uh, the visit when Grasimov went into Ukraine. We we thought he was there just to sort of do a bit of shouting and, and arm waving. Um, but if he was actually there to to direct uh, military action, I mean, it's just it's just staggering. Um, even more so when you take that to the next level up to Putin, because what should happen ideally at this level? So Putin, the, polit- the politician, the leader, should be looking up and out. They should be in no way, not in no way, interested in in the military action. But their job is to keep society on board, keep keep any international alliance um, together and strong, and to seek more friends. I mean, he does he does need new friends. So the politician should be looking up and out. Um, fairly similar for Gerasimov, the, very, the head of the, the head of the military should should also be look, looking up. He should be his job should be to to get the resources from the politicians for what the military needs, and then he should he should shape the military accordingly to whatever the the, the assessed threats are. Um, of course, needs to look look down ideally at, and to instill a culture of of values and and um, uh, discipline and and all the other. The other things that we take for granted over here and are seemingly seemingly lacking in the in this Russian army, but yeah, Gerasimov mainly should be should be looking up because, of course, underneath him, after the chaotic first few weeks of the war, when the army seemed to be having three different wars, one in the north, one in the east, one in the south, then the air force was laid over the top of that and just seemed to be going around doing its own thing. Um, the navy and the Black Sea were wobbling around threatening an amphibious landing and, and lobbing missiles in so there were, there were about five different wars going on so Dvornikov was then put in charge of the overall theater of Ukraine to, to pull all these pieces together to coordinate action to bring the the land air and sea together with with cyber effects and information and, and all the rest of it to really to just to run the campaign and then of course underneath General Dvornikov as the theater commander you'd have various other 
generals, either sort of major general or lieutenant general, um, in charge of combined arms armies. And only below that would you then have brigadiers in charge of a pretty small chunk of real estate, depending where it is. But I would imagine in the Donbass, a brigade has probably got a front of about 5 to 10 Ks, maybe 15 Ks, depending on, on the on the ground. Uh, within that within that brigade, you've then got the battalion tactical groups commanded by a colonel. And they'd be given very, very stiff boundaries um, that they can't they can't just roam wherever they like because they'll be trampling all over their their colleagues to left and right. So so a battalion tactical group would have a have a, a fixed objective in front of them, um, very clear boundaries to left and right, and and off they go. So if that is the level to which Putin and Gerasimov are said to be are said to be meddling, it it, it is extraordinary. Um, I mean, you need to be some kind of savant to run a country and run a military campaign at that at that level at the same time and 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 putin has shown that he's not that kind of person and and what it also shows is this complete lack of trust that runs through the whole system it is very difficult to um it adopt the the the, the doctrine that we have in the west of, of mission command which is you tell the people beneath you what you want them to achieve you give them a fixed amount of resources fixed time constraints and then just let them get on with it let them use their initiative they're the people on the ground they're the people sniffing the cordite they can see the problem set in front of them they know what the what the reality is of their equipment state the morale and all the rest of it they can see what the what the problem is and how best to solve it so you need to trust them to to get on with it it takes a huge amount of courage to to do that more so today when with digital technology it is possible to to know the location of every single soldier every single vehicle and the temptation is for senior commanders to lean in and and, and get this information and say oh no go go north a bit or go left a bit or you know we should do that or move your artillery over here it takes great trust in the chain of command to to resist that temptation and just to let let your subordinate commanders get on with it my um in my former life when I was to dress as a tree I had briefly as a boss um general uh Mark Carlton Smith, who's the current head of the army, Sir Mark Carlton Smith. And um, he had this expression. He used to say that it, it was up to commanders to delegate until it hurts and then delegate some more. I mean, that was his that was his philosophy. Just really push that decision-making down. Give them the resources, give them the constraints, but push that decision-making down. Because otherwise, you are... You're stymieing initiative. You're not allowing people to to take advantage as the, as they as it presents itself on on the battlefield. Um, you're not allowed. You're not allowing them to push on from one objective to another if the if the ground and the situation allows it. And and it just it just slows everything down. If all the decisions have to go back up to the top of the tree for a yes no and then come back down, it just absolutely slows the whole thing down. And we've seen that in the in the in the Russian advance. Um, and it all comes down to trust. You've got to trust the people above and below and to, to the left and right. And, and if, the, if that's not there, then it will play out in all sorts of areas. And I think what we've seen from the Russian forces over the, the last few months of this war is the, these little sort of hernias of, of, of mistrust um, and lack of leadership and these, the, where, where culture is, has just gone badly wrong. Some of these, these the discipline breaches, these, these the impact in the north around butcher these atrocities that we're seeing i mean these this is not as i said at the time this is you know most armies most of the time do not act like that the vast majority of armies the vast majority of the time do not act like that this is not normal and it all comes down to a culture of the military and and that to a very great degree comes down to the trust that is held by one soldier to another up and down left and right and if these reports are correct from the from the military source very very senior military source um, 
that Putin and Gerasimov are are fiddling around at sort of uh, battalion tactical group slash brigade level, then it, it speaks of a of a complete lack of trust running through the entire system and and just a a rotten culture. Thanks, Tom. I'm, I'm sure at some point we'll talk about your career dressing up as a tree. Um, but before that, just very quickly, for those of us who are not um, mili- mi- military-minded, um, when you can, can we just be clear? So the, the implication is they're interfering on a level where it might be saying things like, you guys over here, go shell that building or move into that wood or hide behind this, like that, that kind of level of, of, con- of control freakery. Well, the military source wouldn't, wouldn't give any examples of of actions that we have seen and we can point to um, that would probably possibly uh, you'd be able to um, reverse engineer that and work out what the uh, what the source is or what the technical means are that, that that allow them to know that that level of decision making. But but as I say, a battalion tactical group uh, and even a brigade would have such a narrow narrow frontage in the fighting in the Donbass. These are tiny tiny pieces of real estate, such that. If that's the level, it's not quite down to you know destroy that building, go go to the right of that uh, of that village, but but not not much more than that to be perfectly honest. And if they're being if they're if they're fiddling like that, it, it just speaks. I mean, if they've got the attention to detail such that they can do that all over the place, then um, then good luck to them. But they they clearly haven't because um, they've made a mess of it in many many other areas i mean in the british army we used to call this thing the um, the long-handled screwdriver it was as if the the boss up the top had this massive long you know, screwdriver and he was reaching in and tinkering around with uh with with the engine from from afar and it was so annoying because they haven't got the most up-to-date information they don't know the problem set they don't know the pressures you're under and they don't trust you if you if you say i can do that but i can't do that they, they don't they don't trust you they say well i don't i don't care i want i want you I want you to do it anyway it's just it just goes against all sensible application of of military force um so yeah I, I, if that is what's been happening it's it's not surprising that this this assault has 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 stumbled um and and stuttered to a halt in the donbass well thank you very much ben uh dom sorry uh, ben i know you had a a question and after that uh, if there's nothing if there are no more updates let's move to our final thoughts please great thank you david and and that's that's kind of really interesting um dom just in terms of kind of the history of this um from from a basic perspective I'm, i've not got that much kind of knowledge of kind of military or, or kind of tactics around this is this kind of precedented at all is there any examples of where um kind of generals or kind of even leaders as in like putin have had that much kind of day-to-day involvement or kind of tinkering and kind of um backseat driving if you will of of a war is that kind of precedented and how did that go for those armies is does this kind of suggest that there there may the house of cards may fall very quickly or or is it kind of hard to say what the kind of impact on kind of a a much more kind of macro long-term scale of the war will be from this yeah sure thanks ben i mean it is always hard to say um predicting war is a is a mugs game um the enemy gets a vote as they say so you can never Never say with any great certainty, but Hitler was famous for this in the Second World War. He um, he used to love playing fantasy fleets, um, and towards the end of the war, when literally the, the formations simply were not there, they were still on paper, and he was trying to move things around that just did not exist. He he would really micromanage, and and obviously that that didn't end that didn't end well. I mean, it, it comes down to the the best people making the best decisions or being in the position to make the best decisions they can, and generally. 
politicians are not great at playing playing uh, at the military and, and vice versa. Plenty of examples of that around the world. Um, and very senior leaders, very senior military leaders are are so far away from, as I say, that the, the realities of the ground that they are um, in, in some respects they, they think they've got more information because they can physically see with satellites or or um, friendly force trackers if you've got the you know, digital technology will allow as i say allow you to see um it's possible to see where every soldier and every vehicle is and they so they think they know they know the most but but they don't have that i'd say the whiff of cordite in the in the nostrils they don't know what's what's going on and it and it generally it generally doesn't doesn't end well if they if they try to do that now having said that there does come a time when um when you just need to get on and do it quite frankly in the in the military i remember uh an officer once senior officer once saying to me when i'd come up with yet, yet another brilliant idea he said dom we're here to uphold democracy not practice it uh, you know and, th- and there is an element of that there's sometimes when you've just got to say we're, we're we're doing this we're going forward i mean if you look at the last few months of the second world war um certainly from the british perspective montgomery had to he was replacing very senior commanders on a very regular basis because um because you've just got to you've got to push through that as it was a meat grinder through the through the towards the end of the second world war you've got to get it done you've got to get the task done so there is a time and a place for for telling and and you know and saying get on get on with it um but most of the time it you, you there's not room for that most of the time you should say this is what i want you to achieve i don't i don't really care how you how you go about it here's the resources to do it so um, I'm not suggesting there's never a time for for senior officers to say just you know uh, JFDI just flipping do it or you know equivalent, um, but most of the time it doesn't work like that. And most of the time, if you get if if the situation is not it's not absolutely appropriate for a, a JFDI approach, then um, then it's going to end badly. Well, thank you, Dom, and thank you, Ben, uh, for your contributions there. Um, I think we've come to the to the end of our time here. Um, what are your thoughts for the week for, for the rest of the week ahead? Uh, can we sum up? Yeah, well, I'm afraid I'm going to I'm going to be the, the the crack record. I've been saying northeast southwest for some time now, um, so keep your eyes on the southwest Snake Island, the the island in the northwest of the the Black Sea that has to be held by by well, it confers great military advantage to whoever, whoever holds it. Russia probably can't do an amphibious assault in the. Um, Odessa region without holding it because of the the air defence and the anti ship capabilities that could be based there, and equally Ukraine have to hold it for those reasons. Northeast around Kharkiv, I've been saying keep an eye on whether or not that push can go any further. If these reports are confirmed that they've crossed the river, the Siversky Donetsk River, and are then they will then be able to to bite into those supply lines coming south. So I, I'm quite surprised. Um, I, I ask you to. Um, to take these reports with extreme caution until we can confirm them, because I would have thought they'd be um, very, very tired after the, the fighting up there. I'm surprised that they had gone for this. But, I mean, if they have, this is just as a slight segue, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but but this is what I mean about mission command. So if the forces up in that region saw the opportunity in front of them, saw the ground in front of them, was suddenly uh, vacated by the Russian forces, then the local commanders might have said, right, let's keep going, let's keep pushing, let, let's move east, let's get across the river, let's hold the bridgehead, um, rather than if their mission had just been push the Russians back to the border and make sure their artillery is out of range of Kharkiv. You know, instead of just stopping at that point, if the opportunity presents itself and you think it's a sensible military risk to take, then push on, go and do it to a logical a logical bound, a logical sort of place, geographic place and in time um, when you can stop. So a long way of saying 
keep an eye on the northeast and the southwest. Thanks, Tom. Um, ben Gartzer, would you like the final words? Sure. So I think just from a business and economics perspective, kind of what's worth looking at is kind of the knock-ons from both of the points we've discussed today. So in terms of kind of McDonald's exit from Russia, um, does this pod kind of businesses who are still there or still have an extensive footprint in Russia under further pressure? Um, because when, because as, as with the fuel companies, when, when one goes, the rest of them follow pretty quickly. Um, so will we see kind of more pressure on, on those who still have a footprint or have pledged to kind of pause businesses as opposed to completely pull out? Is there now going to be kind of a continued force from Zelensky, from politicians kind of in the home nations of the countries these these companies are based in to actually say, actually, you know what, pause isn't enough. We need to kind of eject completely and, and get you out of there because there is no, there's no moral reason to, to still be kind of operating. And then just on inflation, I think this is going to be the biggest story kind of of the next calendar year. Um, but in terms of where does the pushback come to Andrew Bailey? There's been, we've seen the TUC criticise his comments on kind of don't ask for a pay rise this year um, while earning 575 grand yearly, um, as Governor Bailey does. Um, or kind of is, or from the right, right wing perspective of kind of criticising his lack of ability to control inflation and keep interest rates low um, and kind of potentially did we do too much quantitative easing in the pandemic, which is now coming back to bite us? And kind of the impact of the Ukraine war of that, how do our finances look? What is the British public's toleration for kind of continued economic hardship, which, as is being described by Andrew Bailey, is because of the war, um, when kind of, as we've already mentioned today, that that's one factor of many. Um, so I think having a look at kind of what is the pushback on countries still operating within Russia or have paused operations but still have kind of companies within Russia and what is kind of the political reaction to Andrew Bailey and his latest comments today. Yesterday, I spoke to Maria Ianova. Maria is a People's Deputy of Ukraine, sitting in the opposition European Solidarity Party. We actually spoke to her before, on the 11th of March, very early on in the conflict, so I wanted to call her again to catch up to see how the war had changed and to ask what she's up to now. Maria was elected in 2012 and sits on the Committee of Foreign Affairs. I called her at the airport as she was on her way to Brussels. She spoke about her contact with the soldiers in the Azovstal steel plant and shared some details on her negotiations with the European neighbours. So today is 82 days of uh, invasion of Russia Federation atrocities, war crimes, and uh, acts of genocide against Ukrainian nation. And the main issue, of course, that Putin, <laughs> he, he has gone complete crazy. Of course, um, he still doesn't understand that there is no victory he could sell to the world. But uh, our bleeding wound, if I can name like this, it's of course Mariupol. Because Mariupol... Uh, first of all, became as the symbol of the Ukrainian courage and dedication, and of course, uh, strength and um, resilience. And uh, also, we have spoken with you that that Mariupol, uh, that what Putin would like to do with the whole Ukraine. Of course, uh, we really rely also on leaders and international organizations that they, that they are doing 
more than even they could to save our soldiers and civilian people who are still in Azovstal. Because many friends and uh, believe me, uh, I, I know I, I visited Mariupol started from 2014, July. And that is why, of course, there are guys whom I personally know from sea guards, uh, from uh, uh, marines and others. I mean, it's for, every, for each Ukrainian, it's very personal. So are you still in contact with them? And if you are, what, what do they tell you? Uh, they are absolutely not blaming. They understand that they will fight till the end. But they, of course, they still hope that uh, international society, international leadership, they can find the way how to save them. And they have already announced this. Because uh, can you imagine that there are like hundreds of our guys there and they are keeping fighting with the 20,000 Russian forces. So their heroism, their actions, uh, they will be, they are already in the history. But of course, we, we, we really would like them uh, to, 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 to save. And because uh, while uh, Mariupol is still fighting our guys, then, of course, uh, Putin is not able, you know, to remove his forces to other direction, to increase uh, his uh, Russian forces in Kharkov or in Donbass. And when you speak to your friends in Mariupol, do they still have hope that they might survive? Or do they think this might be it and that, as you said, they're prepared to, they're prepared to die? I also talked to the wives of um, that military guys who are already prisoners of Russian guys. And uh, all I know that they're fighting. They're fighting mm. and uh, all they're addressing is they will fight till the end. They will never give up because you know that there were some hybrid messages that our military guys uh, with the white flag went out. No, I mean, nobody could believe it because uh, we know that they will fight till the end. Uh, but of course, we still hope we are optimist and uh, we stay optimist uh, not only that Ukraine will withstand and Putin will fail, but uh, we are absolutely sure that Ukraine uh, rebuilt into a country of our dreams because, you know, I visited also very small villages uh, uh, around in Kiev Oblast, like started from Matyzhyn to Baradyanka, and we spoke with the people. And they are already working, you know, their, their houses are bombed uh, uh, and they're cleaning um, the stones and trying to build their houses again. So and they have uh, this uh, uh, vicious and desires uh, that all these Russian criminals has to be punished in International Tribune. You are currently on the way to Brussels. Why are you going there? What, what are you going to do? What are you going to tell the Europeans? First of all, this is our parliamentary uh, association committee. That's like separate small institution between the Parliament of Ukraine and European Parliament. Of course, we will advocate and promote um, that our country deserves to get candidacy status for our country. The pollings are saying that 92% of Ukrainian people would like to be part of European Union. And uh, I, I'm sure that Ukrainian nation deserves to be because we are fighting now for 
for real democratic and European principles and values. Also, we will open an exhibition about the war in Ukraine and many photos from, you know, different towns of Ukraine, Kharkiv, Chernihiv, Kiev, Kherson, I mean, other, Mariupol, of course, uh, that that the reality is different. Uh, But also, um, we also wanted to speak with the, the, the representatives of that countries who are still you know, doubts on energy, gas and oil embargo, because it's time, you know, to get out from comfort zone and probably, yes, to buy um, these energy resources on uh, expensive, on higher price, but not to betray, uh, you know, democratic principles, because we have to show that dictatorship, dictators could be defeated and that democracy is a strong model of uh, the managing countries. So we also have to show altogether that EU countries are able not only to defend democracy, but also to fight for this in different ways. And uh, that is why I think that that will be our messages uh, also, that this is a geopolitical now fight really, that uh, Putin has to understand that there are no ways that all the world will defend uh, democratic principles and values. Of course, the Ukrainians now are on the battlefield, but EU leaders, EU countries can do it by other actions. So that's your, that's your message to uh, parliamentarians from places like Hungary, that Yes, that higher, yes, higher, yes. higher prices for, for gas and oil are worth it because of, because of how important democracy is? Yes, yes, yes. You know, for example, I visited some uh, Baltic countries and, of course, uh, Lithuania and Estonia. And, of course, it was more on uh, advocating because they are advocating us also in connection with USA and all other countries of EU because uh, they were with Ukraine and they were telling who is uh, Putin, uh, you know, started from 2014 that the strategy of dialogue and appeasement of Russia is failed. But now they have, you know, more capacity and more rights to speak more loud about this. And also in USA and Canada, and of course, uh, Great Britain, I didn't I didn't visit, but uh, we're in contact and we see all your great support and uh, not only like, you know, you know, solidarity in words, but also by actions, because for us, uh, and the main issue is actions, and we see these sections, and that is why we really appreciate such actions. But again, what I would like to say, uh, I didn't change my mind. It's not yet enough, mm. especially on the uh, weapon. And that is why, of course, we continue to ask more offensive and defensive weapon to our Ukrainian armed forces. We have uh, liberated uh, regions, and we have still uh, towns under occupation and that is why we need to liberate them also but for that we need offensive weapon very serious putin will fail again but again the main guarantee for us not only eu candidacy but i think that the main security guarantee is uh, nato membership and we hope that uh, we will fulfill our criteria uh, and also nato will not you know, afraid of any messages and blackmailing, putting put blackmails and uh, all the countries will accept our country as a 
member of NATO. You mentioned just then uh, the United Kingdom's contribution. How did Boris Johnson's speech go down with you and, and your colleagues in the Vakovna Rada when he made it the other week? Yeah, I just uh, wanted also to, to say a few words about this because uh, it was very inspiring, it was very strong, and we really need such support of Saharan uh, working uh, leaders. But of course, for my colleagues, for our faction, and I'm sure for the majority of the parliament of Ukraine, the words that we have to save also democratic principles inside our country is very important because we are fighting not to be Russia. And that is why we have, you know, to continue to save this uh, freedom of speech, rule of law, human rights, uh, people's lives, uh, and uh, all other principles which we are fighting for. That is why it is so important to remember this unity has to be in actions and not only, you know, in the speeches. And that is why that it was so important when Boris Johnson reminded us what democracy is and not to lose what we have. And uh, sorry, I have to go because we are boarding. I'm Not sorry. at all. Have a very good journey. Thank you so much for talking to us, Maria. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a Thank good you. journey. Happy to hear you. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Alice Hearing. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.